You may be seated and the buckets will be being passed. And I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We're going to finish the second chapter. I think this is the fifth message in the book of Ephesians with us. I'm loving this study. I'm loving getting into the Word of God. The book of Ephesians, for me, has been one of my favorite books. Does anybody have a favorite book of the Bible? Just shout it out. What's your, one of your favorite books of the Bible? What is it? Nice and loud? Ruth. Revelation. Colossians. Don't say the book of Maccabees. Please don't say that. It's an intertestament Catholic Bible or book. What was the other one, Sarah? Philippians, for sure. The theme of Philippians is joy. Romans, yes, the heavy theology of Romans. We're in Ephesians. Ephesians has been one of my favorite books, and I've gone through it with my first church up in Connecticut. Now it's a joy to go through it a second time with Harvest Reading. So we've, I think this is my fifth message with you. We got about maybe, uh, maybe 15 more, I think. Uh, and so we're going to make it through this book, and we're going to be getting downloaded from the Lord the revelation that he wants us to have. Uh, but to do that, we're going to have to have the Holy Spirit lead the way, right? Because the Holy Spirit wrote the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit is the one who speaks the Word of God to us. Let me ask you a question. When you think of determination, what comes to your mind? I want to show you what I think of determination. Somebody who might be a little bit determined here, take a look at the picture up here on the screen. Is it there? Are we there? Hello? Here we go. What do you think, huh? Is that determination? Or how about this one here? <laughs> I love that. Wonder Woman wannabe, right? What is determination? We call it resolute, and that's the title of the series that we're going through. Are you a resolute person? Or are you determined to live like a disciple? We're going to need determination. And when you think of determination, when you think of being resolute, the Apostle Paul is wanting Christians in Ephesus and us to realize that to be a Christian or to be a disciple is to be a follower. It's to give your life to him and say, Jesus, I want you to take my life. At your conversion, Jesus not only became your savior, he became your Lord. There's no separation like some Christians want to believe or some Christians have been taught. You can't become, Jesus can't become a savior and then also 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, he becomes your Lord. We don't divide that. We don't divide the Lord like that. We are determined and we're resolute to follow Christ no matter what. And people like Jeff or people like Jay or people that are going through some stuff right now, this is the time where you learn how to become resolute more. Would that be true, Jeff? You become resolute. You become determined. You either go towards Christ or you go away from him. And I've seen so many people through the years go away from Christ. And they're not determined anymore because the trial or the temptation has overwhelmed them and become too difficult for them. But listen, there is no trial or temptation that's, not too, that's too difficult to overcome you. There's nothing strange, I think it was Peter who said that is overwhelming you, that isn't common to man. So let's talk about that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, I'm titling this section of the scripture, the end of chapter two, Reconciling Broken Relationships. Reconciling Broken Relationships. The first relationship we need to talk about is our relationship with God that was broken. And Paul obviously had a relationship with Jesus that was restored. You remember that in Acts chapter nine, he was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. And God came down on him and, and leveled him right to the ground. And he became a Christian in that moment of time. 
And he was radically transformed. And that's what happens to a real believer. You're radically transformed. It doesn't matter if you're seven years old, you're going to be radically transformed, or you're 17 or you're 70. When the gospel comes into your life, it'll, it'll do some change. And that's what we saw in verses one and two. And, and then we saw that we're radically committed to him. We're called saints. And the people in Ephesus were called faithful in Christ Jesus. I love how Paul begins the book of Ephesians. He's talking about being radical. But then he goes into this eulogy. Eulogia is the word that we looked at, and it's, it's this speaking well of God, not because he's died, as we would give a eulogy at a funeral, but because he lives. And Paul says, I'm going to speak well of my God, eulogia. And so he's going to give this eulogy, and he's going to speak well, and he says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he elevates God. He goes vertical, and he says, blessed is God. And he's saying, God, you are great, and what you have done in your plan of salvation is spectacular. It's a panoramic view of all the mighty purposes of God. It's a mystery how you're bringing us into the body of Christ and you're making one new man. What a tremendous beginning. Let me give you the theme of what we're looking at here. He says it in chapter one, verses nine and 10. I'm gonna read it to you. He said this, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he, he set forth in Christ as a plan. Watch this as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. There it is. That's the grand scheme of what Paul's talking about. And he talks about this immeasurable power of God in the gospel to fulfill the mighty plans of God. And then he goes into prayer and he's saying, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten their heart because if the Spirit of God doesn't open the eyes of the blind person, they're not going to be able to see. So he intercedes, and we looked at that, the prayer of intercession. He's talking about some of the great doctrines of the faith. We looked at those a little bit, election, redemption, and inheritance. And man, you need the Spirit of the Lord to show you those, because you will not figure that out. Like that tape measure I illustrated, you're going to max out your finite mind, and you're going to be so frustrated trying to figure out redemption, trying to figure out especially election or Sovereign grace. You need the spirit of the Lord, and that's why Paul prays. Then he moves into chapter two, and we looked at the condition or status of our lives, and we are dead. Isn't that what it said? Do you believe that we are dead in our trespasses and sins? That's the reality of it. And so Paul moves through those first 10 verses and talks about the deadness of all of our lives. He's talking about here the glorious gospel of salvation, of free grace. And he's talking about the immeasurable power of God to save a person. So he has to talk about spiritual death. I remember being in Hoover Dam, if you could bring that image up. I was out in California and then moved over to Nevada, and I lived in Arizona for a while, and I had to visit Hoover Dam with my wife. Has anybody ever seen this place in real life, in real time? It's phenomenal. I mean, I was leaning over the edge of that. Now, this picture doesn't even give it justice, but... If you're leaning over the edge of this thing, looking down, it's immense. The thing is huge. People died building the Hoover Dam. Well, we got a tour of the Hoover Dam, and we went down inside of it to the, to the big turbines, the power inside of Hoover Dam. And listen, Phoenix, where I lived, couldn't exist, and Las Vegas couldn't exist if it wasn't for Hoover Dam. You take Hoover Dam away and the power that is generated, and there is no Las Vegas or Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know if you knew that. Because cities can't survive there. 
but it can survive because the power that is coming out of Hoover Dam. It's, it's unbelievable. But there is a greater power than that, and that is the immeasurable power of God to save a lost person. And if you don't know that you're dead, and this is where Christians go wrong, salvation will not be great to you if you don't know how lost you were, if you don't know your status and your condition. And if you think by the works of your own hands you had something to do with your salvation, salvation won't be great. And that really upsets Paul. And Paul's like, well, we need to look at this. And that's why he's moving through chapter two. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the Christian life and a person becoming a Christian. I wanted you to see what he looked like if you're not familiar with one of my heroes. He went to meet Jesus in 1981, but he was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. So if you ever get a chance to YouTube Martin Lloyd-Jones, listen to some of his messages. But he said this, and I'm going to try to read this. We should realize that the most marvelous, we should realize that the most marvelous and wonderful thing that can ever happen to anybody in this world is simply him becoming a Christian. If only every church member, every Christian in the church realized this truth, the church would be so different that we should be scarcely recognizing her. <laughs> if anybody knew the doctrine of salvation, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he knew that this gospel was free grace, that this gospel came to him and it came to other people that he was ministering to, like it did come to the Ephesian believers. And if only we realized, he said, what it really took for us to become Christians, the church would look completely different. And I happen to believe and take that position. And this is why the church in America is so lethargic. This is why the church in America is struggling, because they're not realizing the great salvation they're not realizing the gospel of free grace. And it's hard to recognize the church where they're not so elevating the mystery of the gospel of grace. So that's chapter two. Now what Paul does, he keeps moving forward. And he's going to give an illustration of yet the power of God to do something that was completely impossible, and that was to reconcile relationships. And so I want you to look at the text with me. And how does God reconcile relationships? I'm going to look at three principles with you. We got to first realize this. It's no longer flesh. That's number one. And when I say flesh, I mean the works of our own hands. Now get this, because he's trying to say that in verses 1 to 10. He's saying the salvation that we have isn't a work of the flesh. It's not a work of my hands. It wasn't like I came to God and I presented to God a plan. And I said, God, you're going to have to honor my plan. And this is what I'm presenting to you. This is the works of my hands. No, the only hands I could give to God when I was dead is, is, God, I'm receiving what you have for me. And the only way I could have lifted up my hands and received that is because God was regenerating me before I was converted. Because you got to have regeneration before you have conversion. So God starts to put life inside of us. I lift my hands up and then I receive redemption. This is what Paul was talking about there. But it's not the work of our own hands. It's in verses 11 down to verse 15. And so Paul transitions that word, therefore, there. If you look at the text, it's a very important word. We've looked at transition words, the word that or and or but. And so Paul is transitioning with this word, therefore, because he's going to build off of verses 1 to 10. He's going to give an, an illustration. Now, I've given some illustrations through the years that maybe have been helpful during preaching. But this illustration that Paul's going to give to the Ephesian Christians is going to go off the charts. This will be one of the greatest illustrations of the power of God in salvation to reconcile relationships. And listen, by the end of our message here, you're going to think, well, there's a relationship with my husband or wife that's beyond repair. 
there's a relationship with my son or daughter or my cousin or my dad or whoever. And you're going to think, no, there's no way that God could reconcile that. But when you see the illustration that Paul is going to lay out here between Jew and Gentile and how that could never have been a work of hands because you're trying with your own might to try to reconcile something in your flesh and it's not going to work. And the spirit of the Lord is going to say to you, no, no, it can't be your hands. It's going to be, have to be the power of God to reconcile. Because only the power of God could reconcile the relationship between a Jew and a Gentile. I want to look at this with you because it's no longer flesh. He uses that word. Notice in the text, he mentions to the Ephesians, they were Gentiles in the flesh. Gentiles. Now, there's going to be a comparison between Jew and Gentile. But I want you to see that word flesh. That's the works of your hands. You're made in the flesh or by hands, is what he's saying, to the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting is that down a little bit lower in the text, he said about Jesus, that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the middle wall of partition. So we have our hands and we have Jesus's hands. We have our hands that we want to contribute to salvation, which we can't, because it's only the hands of Christ who received the nail of Calvary and in that hand and in that work is salvation. And that's where Paul's going. And he's saying, no, no, it's not our hands. It's not our flesh that can reconcile relationships. Not only with God, but with one another. And I'm going to show you that, he says. I'm going to give you this illustration. He says in verse, I think it's 21, remember, remember, at one time you. Now remember, these are Gentile Christians in the city of Ephesus. These are not Jewish people that he's writing to. And he wants them to know that they've been changed, that something has happened in their life. Now, what is the change that has brought? What caused the change is what we should ask. And so he says, and again, in, in a little bit lower, remember. He's wanting them to never forget how they got to where they were. And listen, it's so easy to do that. I've been a Christian 31 years. I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but isn't it easy to forget where we've come from and what God has done? That's why sometimes I want you to go back in your mind's eye to the day that you got born again. And don't ever forget that day. Don't ever forget what God did. So verses 1 to 10, he's talking about being dead. We understand that. Spiritual death. He's bringing up this relationship with the Gentiles. And he's saying that they're in the flesh. Now he's direct. They're non-Jews. And he's going to move into their space. And Paul is like this. And this is what I like about the Apostle Paul, that he's direct. And he's honest. He was honest about how dead we were in our sins. Now he's going to be honest about the condition of a Gentile. And then he's going to compare the Jew and the Gentile and how the Jew looked at the Gentile and how the Gentiles were receiving that in that day. The truth of the matter is, the Ephesian Christians knew that they were in an impossible situation when it came to a relationship with Jewish people. Jewish people are called the circumcision. You'll see these verses or these words used in the text, 11 to 15. The Gentiles are referred to as the uncircumcision. So you and I are the uncircumcised. We're Gentiles, all of us, unless you're a Jewish person today. And I don't think I've met a Jewish person in Reading yet. So we're Gentiles. The Bible says in verse 12 that we were alienated from God. We were separated from Christ. Now remember, he's saying this to them, but he's also saying it to us as Gentiles in our lost condition we were separated from Christ. You got to remember that Israel was the chosen people. The nation of Israel was elected above every other nation. 
In other words, God bypassed nations and he went directly to the Jewish nation. And he says, I'm electing you. Some people think election is only on a national scale. When we get to Ephesians 1, Paul's talking about a personal election. He's not talking about a personal election back in the Old Testament. He's talking about a national election of the Jewish people. When he gets to Ephesians 1, he's talking about you and I have been chosen before the foundation of the world. So he's talking about the commonwealth of Israel and the nation of Israel. And we are strangers from this commonwealth. We are not the chosen people. We are aliens, he said. The covenant of promise is given to the nation of Israel and to Jewish people. And we have no hope, he says. As a Gentile, we have no hope. And remember, they're listening to, or they're actually reading the, the verses like we would read them now, but they're getting this word from the Apostle Paul as he writes it in Rome. And so he's putting them into a situation where they realize that it's impossible in their own flesh to be reconciled to the Jew, to the commonwealth of Israel. Now think about this in the context of relationships. First, your relationship with God. God has reconciled you to himself. God is the one that initiated that. And he came into your world, he came into your space, and he saved you by his grace. And he reconciled you back to himself. Think about the relationships that you have. Think about relationships down through history, the divisions, the family fights. Can I show you a picture here? Would you bring that image of this, this family? Bring that up here if you would. Who do you think these people are? Anybody have any idea? This is not the Waltons, man. This, this is not the Brady Bunch. This is the Hatfield and McCoys. So when you think of racial reconciliation or family squabbles or fighting, I don't know about you, but I default to this story because it was really bad. When you think about history and the racial tensions, and we got all kinds of partitions and divisions. We got the Iron Curtain, the Bamboo Curtain. We got, we got denominations inside of evangelical Christianity. We got the Presbyterians, the Methodists. We got the Episcopals. We got the Baptists, the Pentecostals. What is all of that? I'm going to tell you what all of that is. It's flesh. It's flesh. It's not pleasing to the Lord. It's man-made. The whole Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Methodist thing is all man-made. Because when we get to heaven, you're not getting to a part that says Baptist section or the Pentecostal section of heaven. It's just not going to happen. We made that. God didn't do that. It's the work of the hands of man. So that's what I mean by flesh, works of man. Keep that in mind. And the Jewish person would be looking at a Gentile with tremendous prejudice. I don't know if you've ever faced prejudice before. You, everybody faces some form of prejudice. They say that anybody born in the United States is a prejudiced person because you were born into a culture like that. And I've often wondered, Lord, I'm like, I mean, I had some black friends growing up. Larry Wright's one of my closest friends. I still keep in touch with him. He's black. I often wonder, Lord, am I, am I prejudiced toward Larry? Because it's bothered me. I don't think I am. So go back into the Jewish mindset here in the Gentile relationship. We got the Jewish people that look at Gentiles in a very prejudiced way. And the Gentiles are thinking, impossible. There's no way that I could ever be reconciled to a Jewish person. Gentiles were despised. I don't know about you. Have you ever taken that like Briggs, uh, what is it, Myers-Briggs personality kinds of test, personality test? You ever taken some of those? Aren't they interesting? 
Isn't it, it's just, it's kind of scary because some of them say you're a psychopath or a sociopath and you're like, oh man, that's horrible. You know, I'm gonna end up killing people for the rest of my life. I mean, those, those tests are very re- revealing. They're fun to take. I've done them over and over again. I would encourage you to take those. But some of those tests will kind of compare you with animals. <laughs> like if you have a very bold personality like Andy Ortiz, he said that about him. I'm not saying, right? He has a bold personality. If he were to take a test like that, certain kinds of tests, he would be compared to like a lion. <laughs> Andy's like a lion. And then you got other people who are really mild-mannered, maybe quieter, and they're compared to an otter, you know, or maybe somebody. Ever, are you, you know what I'm talking about? You're, how you're compared to animals? Let me bring up an image here, if you could bring up that image. Now, now if I was compared to, to that, that, I think it's a golden retriever, I think. I, I'm not sure what kind of dog. Lab, maybe a lab. If I was compared to that, how, how would that, how, if you were compared to this dog, how would that make you feel? You'd be like, oh, that's awesome. Thumbs up, right, Dennis? Do you know that Gentiles were called dogs? And if you called a Gentile a dog, Jews called them dogs, you know how, what they would feel like? Really bad. <laughs> Not the same that we would feel compared to a lion or an otter. They said, you're a dog. That's all you are, and that's all you'll ever be. That's how a Jew thought of a Gentile. And so the Jews were receiving all of this prejudice. They would, they would get that just on them all the time, all the time. You would go into the temple of the living God. You would go into the temple, and there would be a sign there that would say, no dogs allowed. Now, if you're a Gentile, like we're all Gentiles, you want to go to church, and there was a sign there that said, no dogs allowed, and they meant you? How would you feel about that? There is no way I'm ever going to be reconciled to a Jew. We are totally separated. There's too much of a wall there of hostility. And so Paul's building this illustration. It's, it's massive. There's a great movie called Hidden Figures. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's about three black women who uh, were from phenomenal ladies, and uh, they were smart. They were way smarter than I will ever be, especially the one that was trying to figure out mathematical problems about how you can take you know, the spaceships into outer space and get them back safely. Has anybody ever seen this movie that I'm talking about? Raise your hand. Yep. If you haven't, it's a great movie. Kevin Costner's in it. And you see one of the women, I can't remember the, the, the lady, the actress, actress's name, but she's, she's figuring out, really working hard to figure out how to bring the, the, the um, astronauts back. And she's running down to this lady's room. Does, do you remember that? She's got all her stuff and she's like running and it's raining. And then it's like scene after scene, she's running across the campus at NASA. And you wonder, where's she going? <laughs> she's going to the lady's room because she's not allowed to use the ladies' room that's right down the hall. Because it says, no dogs allowed. It doesn't say no dogs, that's for the Gentiles, but it says what? No coloreds allowed, no blacks allowed. So she's running over there and she's getting wet and, and her heels are breaking. And Kevin Costner, there's a scene where he says, what is going on? And why is she going across the campus? And, she, and he, do you remember that scene he goes and he, I, I can't remember what he used. Was it a, um, like an ax or a sledgehammer? And he starts smashing. And he's smashing this sign. And I'm, I'm just getting goosebumps. I'm watching this and tears are in my eyes because that's, he was smashing down the middle wall of partition so that this woman and these other black women could come into relationship and accomplish a greater purpose. And the Jew and the Gentile is going to come back together in Jesus Christ to accomplish a greater purpose. And the gospel is the only thing, Paul says, that could ever do this. 
So remember how the Ephesians were feeling. There's no hope, it says there. It says there in the text. It says there was no hope. There's no hope for you, Gentile, Paul says. But verse 13 says, but now. Can we say that out loud? But now. Now that's huge. Everybody needs a but now in their life. And when you were born again, it was a but now. And so Paul again is illustrating something. He says that but now you have been brought near. So good about what we talked about the blood of Jesus because it says it right here in the text. You were brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. Now remember, they're in the court of the Gentiles. If they went to church, they had to stay on the outside. You had the Holy of Holies and that was where the high priest went once a year. Nobody else could go in there. It was just him. Then you had these other courts of the Jews, and then you had the court of the Gentiles. That's like me telling you guys, you know what, Loretta, you, you gotta have church, but you can't do church. You gotta go outside in the lobby, and that's as far as you can go. You can't be with us. That would make her feel really loved. Well, that's them. I mean, they're struggling with this. But I love this because I've already quoted it. Jesus, broken down in his flesh, in the works of Christ's hands, the dividing wall of hostility. You remember the curtain was torn in two, right? The curtain was torn in two. That thing was split right down the middle. And we think, and I've thought as a Christian, you know, as a Christian, I'm able to go into the Holy of Holies. I'm able to go into the presence of God. But listen, I'm not thinking like a Gentile at the time. Stay into the context of what's going on, what they're thinking. Wait a minute, me? I was in the court of the Gentiles all of my life, and now you're saying, but now in Christ, because he broke down that middle wall partition, the curtain was split in half, that I can actually go into the Holy of Holies. I can bypass the court of the Jews, and I can go right where the high priest has gone. It's blowing their mind. Why is Paul doing that? To elevate the gospel of free grace. This is where he's going. The impossibility that they, with their own hands, could have reconciled themselves to the Jews. Man, this is an illustration of huge proportions. It's a big deal. It's an amazing thing for them to hear Paul say these things. He was gonna create in himself Christ, one new man, the Bible says. That's the church, Jew and Gentile worshiping together. <laughs> It's hard to even imagine this. The, Jew, the Gentile gets born again, and, and then he goes to the temple, and it's like, okay, this is where I'm used to being, right here in the court of the Gentiles. And this Jewish guy comes over and says, hey, listen, man, come over here next to me. And he's like, well, I don't know. This feels kind of awkward. You know, I've always been like this dog, right? And then, and then he says, no, no, come over here. And they start singing praises, and they're lifting their hands to the Lord and to Jehovah God, and Jesus the Messiah, and they're worshiping, and they're whole, you know, hugging each other, and it's like, yes, we can do this together now. It wasn't their flesh that did that. It was the Spirit of God, and let me tell you this, any relationship that you have experienced, it doesn't matter what it is, because if God put Jew and Gentile together, listen, Jew and Gentile together, he can put any relationship together, any of them. I've seen it happen. I seen a friend of mine, Don and Cheryl, on the brink of divorce. There was, there was one day. It was, it was the day of the signing of the divorce papers. 
And I heard thoughts like, it's never going to happen. It's just past gone. It's, 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 we're done. And I remember I, was, I wasn't preaching. I think we were singing a final song. It was an invitation song. We did invitations where you come to the front, that kind of thing. You might be familiar with that. And I'm on the front row like I am usually here, and I'm just worshiping the Lord. And all of a sudden, Don Sherman starts coming down the center aisle in front of everybody. They're on their way to divorce court. The relationship's over. You know, he's been doing drugs, doing all kinds of stuff. She doesn't trust him. She's like, there's no hope for this relationship. All of a sudden, Lisa's like, Don Sherman is coming down the aisle. And he's weeping, and Don never cries. I've known him 30 years, never cries. He falls on his face. Literally, he's, he's weeping, and every, all these guys start surrounding him. And Don's life was transformed in that moment of time. The gospel, he said, came down and saved him. He thought he was saved for 30 years. He wasn't really born again. What did the gospel do for him? It saved the marriage. Now, Cheryl was like, oh, I don't know. Like, when they looked at the apostle Paul, remember when Paul got saved? I don't know if this is real. And so it took a year for Cheryl to get to that place where it's like, you know what? Jesus really did change my husband. So don't tell me, please don't tell me that your, your marriage, your relationship with your son that's estranged or your cousin or your dad or your mom is beyond repair. It is not. You can never convince me because I see it here in the word of God, but it will not be your flesh that fixes that. It won't. Number two, we got to move fast here. It'll be lunchtime by the time I'm done, right? Number two, no fighting. So no longer flesh, no longer fighting, verses 16 down to verse 18. He says in verse 16, the hostility is killed. I love that. The hostility between Jew and Gentile, the partition, the walls, the dividing prejudices and all of that. There's no more fighting. Verse 17, he came and he preached peace. This is what Jesus did. He's preaching peace. Now remember, he's preaching peace to the Jew and Gentile. He's preaching peace and the Gentile Christian in Ephesus is receiving that. Like, wow, Jesus came, he's preaching peace and reconciliation. Verse 18, he says, we both, uh, Jew and Gentile, now have been come together. They've been reconciled and there is to be no more fighting. There is to be no more quarreling. You know, it's not about the flesh, it's about the spirit and the gospel has changed us and has done incredible things in our life. He says that we're born again by the spirit of the living God. We've been reconciled or made peace with God through the gospel, but not only peace with God, we got peace from God, but that peace from God is also peace with other people. Now, please follow me on this because I'm gonna move fast to the last two points here. This all happened in the gospel. The gospel, it happened in the Jew and Gentile relationship. Their relationship, which was hostile at one time, now is at peace. Just like our relationship with God the Father in our deadness, the gospel came, changed us. Now we're at peace with God because before that you were at enmity with God. In other words, we were enemies with God. You hated God. I said before that that you worshiped Satan. That was a strong word. I don't know if you thought that was a strong word, but hey, man, if I'm going to tell you you're a Satan worshiper, but that's what we were. We were taken captive to do his will, the Bible says. And so all of the gospel changed all of that. It reconciled us with God, but it also reconciles us with other people. And listen, church, there ought not to be any fighting. There shouldn't be any fighting between husband and wife, between father and son if you're in Christ. There shouldn't be any fighting amongst Christians is where Paul's going with this. The gospel is a reconciling gospel. There should be no more fighting. But you know what? There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of Christian division. There's a lot of people who aren't grasping what Paul's trying to say here. 
I've seen professing Christians through the years that bicker and they complain and they fight and they bring division and pain to the church of Jesus. And what's going on there? Can I just tell you what's going on there? It's nothing but flesh. It's nothing, that, it's nothing but your fellowship with God has been broken. And so if I get in a fight with my wife or if I get into a fight with somebody else, you know what the issue is? It's my flesh. And my flesh wants to be fed and I want to be right and my pride gets the best of me. And then I start fighting with her. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. And then I repent and I say, sorry, we make up. But there shouldn't be any fighting. I remember my wife and I did a lot of fighting in the early years of our Christian life, didn't we, babes? Did we get a confirmation amen on that over there? What was the problem? It was my immaturity. It was my pride. It was my selfishness. Well, what happens if I'm 30 years in the Lord and I'm still doing that? What's that a result of? Immaturity. (laughs) I don't fight as much because I've matured more. Do I have a ways to go? Certainly. But if you find yourself fighting a lot with people, it's flesh. It's your pride. What do you do? You got to reconcile back to God, the fellowship. You don't have to get born again, again, again. Some people teach that. Walk about a million times during just as I am, so you get born again, again, again. You don't need that. You just need fellowship. Uh, Scott was talking about that last week, about being filled with the Spirit. That's what it's talking about. Let me show you James 3. Again, I told you I'd go a little bit quicker. I just, I'm excited about this text. It's so good. James 3, 13 and 14. Can we see that? It says, who is wise? Because Paul is like looking at scriptures. He's understanding that this fighting amongst Christians is unbelievable in the church. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Power under control, that's meekness. You don't have to push yourself on somebody else. You don't have to prove yourself. You're just kind of meek. You're like, I can do this if I wanted to, but I'm gonna choose to humble myself. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you wanna know why you're fighting? You're jealous. And you got some selfish ambition going on. I mean, this is just the word of God. I'm just telling you what it says. And it's breaking the fellowship that we have with God. It's in our heart. Obviously, do not boast and and to be false to the truth. James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Obviously, there was something going on or James wouldn't have had to address it. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. First Corinthians, of course, this church was a mess. Verse one or 11 of one. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Can we just keep going one more time? Here we go, one more. Keep going with me. Second Corinthians, you go back to that. Second Corinthians. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, watch jealousy again, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit. You'll see all of those things in a man or a woman, Christian, who's not spirit-led. No more fighting. I just go back to the Ephesian believers, the Gentiles. They understood fighting. They understood that. And the, the, where Paul's going with this is the cross. You've got to keep going back to the cross. You've got to keep going back to where Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. That hostility is now gone between us and God. And that fighting between us and God is gone. And 
And it just makes sense that that DNA is now in us and there should be no fighting among Christians. I read the story about two women who uh, just got into a massive quarrel and literally punching each other. Now, this is in a church service. They're punching each other right in front of the Lord's table. They had it all fixed up nice. It was a traditional church. You know, they're wearing dresses. That was the context and the culture of that church. And they're wrestling around and scratching each other and fighting in front of the Lord's table. That stuff is happening. There shouldn't be fighting like that. Now, I've gotten a few fights through the years, right? When I was younger, fist fights. I don't get into fist fights anymore. Aren't you glad for that? That would be a little bit concerning if your pastor was around beating people up and, and fighting people. I don't do that anymore. But when I was a non-Christian, uh, I would get in fights. And when I was, a, I have an older brother, a younger brother. I'm the confused middle child. You know, so I, I, we would get in fights, my older brother mostly and me. And so we would be punching each other, you know, like bang, you know, and, and you, know, you know, blood's flowing, eyeballs are getting all puffy like Rocky Balboa. You know, sometimes we're crying, we're cursing. Mom and dad come and they split us up. And they say, will you guys stop fighting? Would you guys get along? Of course, we weren't punching at each other anymore. But was there peace between my brother and I at that moment? Yes or no? No. What needed to happen? Well, peace goes further than just not punching each other. Peace goes further than saying, you know, you're a blankety blank and I can't stand your guts and I wish you were dead. If you stop saying that kind of stuff, that's not peace. Peace goes further than that. Peace is like my attitude starts to change. You know, the way I view the other person starts to change. And then my words start to build them up and I show love to that person. That's when peace is really happening. So just because you're not beating each other up with words or fists doesn't mean there's peace. It goes further than that. So anyway, this is the illustration that the Apostle Paul is giving. Jew and Gentile, the impossibility of it all. Can I look at number three with you? No longer foreigners, no longer foreigners. Verses 19 down to verse 22. I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, I promise. But I think it's an important principle. Have you ever visited a foreign country? Anybody been to a foreign country? You're saying, yeah, I've been to Berks County. That's pretty foreign. Lancaster's like a foreign country. <laughs> it's different down there. And so I've been to a few foreign countries, not a lot, but I've been overseas. I want you to, to think about this. You, you get a trip, and you're excited about your trip to London. So you're going to England. And when you get there, you have a rental car that you've reserved, but they say to you, we don't have that car, but we're going to give you an upgrade. And they're going to give you an upgrade to this. <laughs> and you're like, for the same price? A BMW? And you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm really loving this foreign country right about now. Right? You understand the language. You, you certainly are going to enjoy that BMW. But what happens if we went over to Germany? You don't know the language. Can we bring this up here? I'm going to try to do something with you. Now, these are some German words. And so you're in Germany right now. You love the architecture. You love the history of Germany. You know, you love the, the, uh, the kibasa or whatever. What the, they drink that, eat that sausage, right? You know, brockwurst or whatever. So you're over there and you like that kind of stuff, but you want to try to interact. You want to try to connect. But you're feeling a little bit awkward because you don't know the language. So let's just try this. Uh, I mean, I might be able to get the first two words. To, you know, I might be able to do that. Can we try to do the third one together? <laughs> yeah, whatever. I mean, I'm in a restaurant in Germany, and I need to say, excuse me, and I have to say that word? 
That's gonna make you feel frustrated. It's gonna make you feel disconnected. It's gonna make you feel like a stranger. And that's the way the Gentiles felt. They felt awkward all the time. They felt like they couldn't speak the language. They felt like they didn't fit in. They felt like an outsider, out of place. In verse 19, you'll notice it says, so then, so then, you are no longer strangers or aliens. Aliens, you're no longer a foreigner any longer in the gospel. You're no longer a foreigner. I love that. because Those words must have been cool to the Ephesian believers. No longer, no, I'm no longer. I'm no longer to feel like I'm an outsider, like I'm ostracized and prejudiced and all. I'm no longer. This is great. I never would have thought that would have happened to me. I'm a fellow citizen. So we have strangers, alien citizens. Strangers, there's no rights or privileges. An alien was a person that had customary privileges and a citizen had full protection. Paul goes on to say towards the end of our text today that we are members of the household of God. The Gentile, you and I are members of the household of God. Listen, this goes way beyond your membership class that you sat through in another church. This is not just sitting there and learning a, little, a few things, how the church does this, how the church does that, and then you walk away with a little pack and you're like, I'm a member. No, this is way beyond that to the Gentile believer in Ephesus. I am a member of the household of God. So verses 20 down to verse 22, he gives a description of the church and what it's like. It's kind of like this, if you bring that last image up, it's a picture of, I don't know, one of the most fancy country clubs I have ever seen. So Paul's going through the church, those verses, and he's describing now what it means to be a member. You're no longer a foreigner. You don't have to worry, because if you went up to a place like this, you would get full membership here. No questions asked. And that's us as non-Christians. I get to come into the house of the Lord, a member of the house of God, the family of God. I was outside the commonwealth of Israel, but now I'm included into that. I am at relationship with the Jew, and that is an impossible situation if it wasn't for the gospel, if it wasn't for the power of God. So we have no flesh. I ask you a question. I'm going to close here in prayer. No flesh. That means not my hands. Are you able to say that about your salvation? Not my hands anymore. Are you able to say that about re reconciliation? And are you able to say that about your relationships with other people that you've been fighting with for so long? It's not going to be my hands anymore. It's the gospel. The gospel can do it. And, and you know what? You don't have to be a foreigner. Don't feel like you're outside. You're a citizen now. So I want joy to be in your heart. We should love one another. We should show kindness. Can we stand? We're going to sing. We're going to sing a song called A Thousand Tongues because when we get to heaven, it's going to be, uh, every, it's going to be diverse up there. There are going to be people that have different stories. There are going to be people who have different backgrounds, different color on their skin. You know, I just can't wait for that day. I think it's going to be phenomenal. I think the church should represent that here on earth. Uh, but it's hard to find that in a church. You can't find hardly diverse. The, only, the one diverse church I've ever really been to is the Brooklyn Tabernacle with Jim Cimbala. And I've been to Times Square Church where David Wilkerson was the pastor. Those are the only two churches I've ever really been in where I saw a little bit of heaven on earth when it came to diversity. It was unbelievable. I love to see our church. It has black people in it. It has Asian people in it. It has white people in it. It has Puerto Rican people in it. It has all kinds. This, this is a little bit of what heaven should look like.
Remember this, no flesh. Not in your salvation. Not in reconciling. No more fighting. No more fighting. And if somebody wants to come against you, wants to fight against you, you just back down. Like Jesus did. He just said, I'm not going to. He just backed down. He trusted the Father. And then you're not a foreigner. Can we sing a thousand tongues? Sing this song, praising God and lifting high his name.